Welcome to part two of this podcast on uh, type 1 diabetes primarily, but also thinking about uh, the potential uh, type 2 diabetes and, 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 and how IO can or, or can't either cause that or, or worsen it. And in, in the first session, I thought it was really nice that we covered a bit of an overview, but actually then really got into some of the investigations and and the C-peptide bit for me was was a bit of a, an eye opener and something I've not thought a great deal about. We talked as we often do about the autoantibodies and it being a lower rate than we see um, in non-IO related cases, and then we were just about to get into management. So. So Anna, look, let's pick up management. I think this bit's really important for us to cover. So let's think about that patient who presents in DKA. And we kind of alluded to it uh, a little bit earlier. We talked about the fact that in essence, we're going to manage this as DKA. Um, and we'll touch on that maybe in a second. And and I'd imagine that's going to be the IV insulin. It's going to be correcting the fluids. It's going to be monitoring the potassium, et cetera. But I thought it was really interesting that you talked about the fact that these patients often don't have the insult that underlies it, like the infection, and and therefore often improve a bit quicker. And I know they improve quicker, but I hadn't really thought about that. So two things I really want to ask is, is the management generally the same? You know, and, and that'll be probably quite a quick answer. But then in terms of that not necessarily having the precipitate infection, when I used to manage DKA mainly as a junior doctor, I in my mind I was always thinking antibiotics and I was always thinking the high risk of clots and therefore anticoagulation. Where do we need to be using empirical antibiotics in this setting? And and, and again, the anticoagulation question, you know, how how high risk is that? Is it the same as DKA not IO related? So I think there's a there's a few things. So um so ultimately, yes, in answer to the first question, yes, you manage them identically as you would do a normal DKA. Um, there's a few things, I think, um, about the sort of the other side of things. I don't tend to empirically treat them with antibiotics um, unless there are other features that suggest that they've got infection. So if they've got a crazily high CRP or they're spiking fevers, absolutely, then yes, I would. Um, but otherwise, I don't tend to give them um, uh, sort, of, sort of empirical antibiotics because it's very rare for them to actually have an underlying infection to treat. Um, in terms of their anticoagulation, and that's a really difficult one because we know that patients who are on immunotherapy have got a significant increase in their thrombotic risk anyway. So on balance, I would suggest that actually, yes, we should probably anticoagulate them at least, at least for, a for a period of time um, because any increase to that already increased risk puts them, I would say, into a very high risk category. So I do tend to anticoagulate them um, while we're stabilising them, certainly. In terms of things like fluid balance as well, so one of the things that tends to happen with DKA patients is they are very, very fluid fluid deficient. They come in very hypovolemic, um, and that's sometimes because they're they're sort of their fluid shift is quite significant. So you do have to do exactly the same thing with our patients. They can um, become overloaded quite quickly. I think that's probably because they are not they're normally a little bit older. So obviously people who have got type 1 diabetes normally present in their younger years um, and they can often manage the fluid shifts a bit better. So again, our patients who are in their 60s, 70s and 80s on checkpoint inhibitors developing type 1 diabetes at that point in their in their lifespan tend to manage the fluid shifts just slightly less well. So if they are a de novo DKA in a slightly old, more, more sort of more 
person of a more advanced years let's say actually they will will often struggle with the fluid shift a bit more so you have to just be a bit careful when you're fluid hydrating them you still need to do the same thing you still need to keep that really careful eye on their potassium you still need to make sure that you're doing all the things that you do with the dka and obviously they're one of the most closely monitored groups of people so that's quite helpful but um but they do tend to um, then propose themselves propose themselves to get a bit overloaded if you're not careful with them okay and then the anticoagulation and i presume we're just talking about prophylactic doses of anticoagulation we're not talking about treatment doses no yeah prophylactic doses great great so Anna let's assume then that you manage this patient uh, you get the the DKA under control be interested then in terms of you know hopefully the diabetic team have been involved in that DKA management and if they haven't you know I would clearly ask them to be referred what are we doing in terms of I presume the diabetic team are ultimately going to decide what the the maintenance dosing of of insulin will look like and and the the preparations we'll use. Do we is there a set guidance in terms of how we're going to monitor blood glucose going on or HbA1c's going on? Do we just follow national guidance for for new type one diabetics? I, I don't know. Is there anything that's specific for our group? There's nothing specific for our group. I think the one thing uh, the there's a, there, I suppose I say there's nothing specific. There's trends, but there's nothing sort of formalised. So, so essentially, it's really important that they're they're referred to the diabetic team. These patients should be managed by by a diabetic team as an inpatient, but also they need to be tied into their community diabetes teams. These patients shouldn't go back to their primary care teams um, as their only source of support, largely because of the fact that it, it, they. There are things that will probably happen to them that will need will will need to to change things over time, partly because these patients are then likely to go and have another toxicity. They will probably be started on steroids at some point. And so, actually, having um, a communication with their diabetic team, somebody that can help monitor and modify their sugars whilst that's going on, is really important. Partly because these patients will be new to managing their sugars, and then to have another reason for them to be um, somewhat complicated—the fact that they're going to have um, deterioration in their sugar levels—and then actually we're going to then titrate down their steroids, so their their glycemic control will improve again. It's very very complicated for them, so they really do need quite quite a lot of input from their diabetic team. And it is important that the oncologist and the diabetic nursing team, and normally it is a nursing team, have conversations about these patients so that they are aware of the fact that they may well need. A, a dose of steroids the rationale for using them um, and actually that we're likely to then wean them down so their sugars will then change again in terms of their insulin requirements so it's one of those situations where actually you end up over the course of the first you know year of, of their diabetes actually they, they tend to have quite a lot of things that change what their diabetic control is like so they really really need to be managed by a diabetic team not by an oncologist I think that's probably the key thing but the oncologists need to tell the diabetes team that we're doing all of these things and the reason why we're doing them they're also a patient group where actually um, thinking about other toxicities where I, I sometimes think about, do I need to use a non-steroid sparing, you know, steroid sparing, non-steroid immunosuppression earlier in their pathway than I would do maybe in somebody who didn't have um, a, a, a diabetic um, complication of their of their, their checkpoint inhibitor already. So I think that's they're, they're the one thing that actually we shouldn't be managing this. We should be we should be supporting those that can manage this better than we can. Um, the other thing is that normally if they get if they get seen by an endocrinologist early enough, this isn't really an issue. But I'm sometimes asked whether 
even though this patient's come in with DKA, will they still need insulin or should they be starting on anti, you know, oral antidiabetics? And is it just that they weren't very well managed? DKA is by its very nature an absolute deficiency of insulin, which is why you get acidotic. So these patients are going to need insulin and they're going to need insulin lifelong. It's not a reversible thing. So I think that's the other thing for messaging, not necessarily to our endocrinology colleagues who will already be aware of that, but you know, uh, but we do often get that by by other other groups. You know, does this is this person going to need insulin? The answer is always yes, and they're going to need it for 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 the, their lifelong sort of treatment they also tend to and it is only a tend to they also tend to have um relatively low insulin requirements and that's probably because these patients haven't got um insulin resistance they haven't got sort of they are they weren't sort of they're not they're not true, for example, type 2s have now become insulin deficient. So they don't have other reasons for insulin resistance normally. It's just that we've literally just wiped out their ability to create it. So their insulin level requirements tend to be lower than somebody who has other risk factors for being diabetic. Um, but that is a, that is a, it's a rule of thumb and an anecdote. It's not, it's not necessarily always the case, but you tend to find that they need lower levels of insulin and they generally have relatively good glycemic control once they've got them stabilised on a particular dose because ultimately we've just removed their pancreas from the equation and they haven't got any of the other the factors that that lead to to diabetes but it just they're, they're sort of rules of thumb rather than absolute things we need to do with these patients but the only important thing is that they are referred to a diabetic team who can manage them closely because we will cause them to have shifting sugars over time okay fantastic so anyone who's listened to podcasts that we've done before will know that every now and then Anna essentially lectures me or counsels me on things that I find tricky. Um, we're about to have one of those sessions, Anna. Ooh, that's so, exciting. I know. <laughs> so there's lots of little questions that go into my head. I'm going to kind of go one by one. Um, I'd be really keen for your thoughts. So question number one is the patient that has developed type 1 diabetes so we, we think we've had a destruction of their beta cells, they've had DKA, we've started them on um, insulin and they're relatively well. In fact, you know, before they become relatively well, we start them on insulin, they're quite unwell. And the, the medical team ring and say, I just wanted to let you know, I've, I've listened to one of your silly podcasts and I've noticed that the liver function's gone off considerably um, and also they've developed an AKI, you know, and creatinine is now 300, except there may be other causes for the, the creatinine, so apart that, but the liver test, let's assume that we're thinking they've probably got multiple toxicities. What are we doing with steroids for that patient? So it is interesting. So I... It, <laughs> If a patient is on insulin, in the acute setting, it is easier than it is if they're on oral antidiabetics, to be honest, to manage those sugar shifts. So I wouldn't not treat them with steroids because they've got diabetes. Um, and what I would do, though, is have, is have that early conversation with my inpatient diabetic nurses and say, hi, what should I do? What recommendation would you say? How much should I? I'm likely to need to increase their insulin. How much am I going to need to increase that by? Um and also, like I say, I tend to think about should I add in a non-steroids um, immunosuppressant earlier? And I definitely would. In the situation you've just described, you've got somebody who's got multiple toxicities affecting multiple organs. That is unlikely, not completely unheard of, but unlikely to manage itself entirely with steroids alone anyway. The other thing is if you've got multiple toxicities, you'll be in a situation where you're likely to have to yo-yo your steroids a little bit because they're not going to have, it would be unlikely for them to have a completely seamless steroid wean. So I would say in that setting, when you've got those things going on and you've already got a, sort of a more complex patient, then I would think be thinking about 
about starting a second line immunosuppression. So in the situation you've given me with a hepatitis and a nephritis, I would be thinking about giving them MMF because it's a relatively well tolerated um, immunosuppressant. Um, but I would uh, I would certainly think about starting that sort of probably at the same time as I recognise they've got a creatinine of 300 and a grade, you know, a grade two hepatitis. In the situation where you've got a colitis, then again, this is a situation where I would think about giving a dose, you know, giving them infliximab earlier on in their in their in their process, just to try and get them off steroids as quickly as possible. Um, but but it's 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 there's no hard and fast rules about this. But that's certainly the way that I'd be thinking about it. The other group that I think that about that in is if somebody has got known known diabetes or um, uh, or new diabetes as a result of their checkpoint and they are struggling to get you know we're struggling to get their um their toxicity under control and their bms are just rising and they're becoming unwell um then i would again move that um steroids bearing uh, usage much earlier in their treatment course that's great so that's really simple advice and now you've said that to me of course that makes perfect sense but i wouldn't have done that instinctively so i think that's that's really useful anna just to say actually what we're saying is we're empowering people to use the immunosuppressive agent that they need to based on the situation and and what you've just described as soon as you started describing when i posed the question i didn't know the answer as soon as i you then posed the question back to me i was thinking well why wouldn't i just give mycophenolate here because that would you know that would save the the steroid and we're very used to using it and so it's a really, really useful, simple learning point. I think that one, Anna. Um, okay, number dilemma question number two. Mm-hmm. So, again, I, when when somebody develops DKA or type one diabetes, I'm thinking about destruction of of the islet cells, and I'm therefore thinking that there are an immune response towards the pancreas. Is it so? I is it? I mean, at the moment, I do just check that the you know the amylase isn't raised and I do think about um you know keeping an eye on that I, I guess am I doing overkill by doing that do you do you do we need to be thinking about the pancreas the exocrine and endocrine function when we see this kind of toxicity just your thoughts around that no I actually do think we need to think about this because again mostly because of the fact that we haven't it, it's difficult to know whether you've got a, a an islet cell specific problem as in either an antibody or a t-cell or whether it's more globally protein specific to the pancreas so and it is very much very feasible to get a pancreatitis or in fact just long-term exocrine dysfunction from from io so i think it is always worth thinking about and and i do always in my dka patients i will always check that their amylase is okay also if they're a patient who's got a a type 1 diabetes as a result of their checkpoint inhibitor and they develop colitis. I'm always a little bit um, suspicious that actually they've developed exocrine dysfunction as opposed to them getting colitis. So they're the group that I will always check a fecal elastase on early in their in their pathway. So in patients that have got colitis, I do tend to check a fecal elastase if patients aren't improving, because then you think, oh, actually, is this is this actually something more related to absorption rather than related to inflammation? Um, so it's one of the things that's in my list of things that I do if patients aren't responding to treatment initially. But in a patient that has got an IO-induced pancreatic problem already, I will always check a fecal last days right up front to make sure it is actually that they've got exocrine function and that's the reason that that's not the reason they've developed their um their diarrhea okay that's really useful that's that's really straightforward okay so let's think the next one so let's move just to that 
that type two space a little bit for a second. In someone who's got a history of type two diabetes, we know that they tell you in new patient consultations. They often seem to do is they say, "Oh, yeah, my, I've got I've got type two diabetes, but it's well controlled on metformin, glucose, whatever they say." Let's say then that patient develops a toxicity and you need to give them steroid. Let's assume that the sugars were relatively well controlled on an oral diabetic agent. What do you, how proactive are you being in terms of changing their medication or increasing it before you cause the sugars to go up? Question number one. Question number two is that there's no, let me give you question number one because there's going to be two, three, and four that are coming. Okay, so proactive in terms of monitoring, not necessarily proactive in terms of changing something before it's happened. So it is not universal that people on steroids develop poor glycemic control. It certainly happens, don't get me wrong, and it happens in the majority, but not in in everyone. So I think actually what you don't want to do is change their medication and actually cause them to have, you know, go, you know, have a have a hypoglycemic episode. And and often the drugs that you use in patients that have got um steroid-induced hypoglycemia is you use things like glyclozide, which can cause you to become hypoglycemic. So you have to be a little bit careful. Um, but certainly, if people are showing that they're, they're going that way relatively quickly, I will I will titrate up their medication. And again, if that's something that you're comfortable in doing, great, and you've got experience, fabulous. If not, please don't feel in any way, you know, you shouldn't feel discouraged at all to ring your either endocrinologist, but all, normally the diabetic nurses are phenomenal and do this day in, day out and are and give great advice. So, but don't be afraid to, to, to contact them. Historically, I think we used to use a lot more medication tablet anti-diabetic medication before we moved on to using insulin but certainly in our practice with our diabetic nurses they will upgrade they will they will uptake titrate their glycoside but if that doesn't give us enough benefit um relatively quickly they will also use insulin for a short period of time recognizing that the patient's not going to need it long term if it is in fact that they've got type 2 diabetes that we've destabilized with steroids obviously the situation is slightly different if they've developed um you know a, a more significant insulin depletion um but certainly we've we've moved to using certainly still um all diabetics in the first instance as per the guidelines but moving to uh insulin for the short term in in not on not an insignificant number of people okay so being okay so that's that's really useful Anna. so then in thinking about the fact that you are queen of baseline testing you are also queen of protocols so keen to know then that the patient so there's two parts to this question the patient who doesn't have diabetes that you start on let's say the equivalent of one milligram per kilogram of methopred let's just pick a dose of 70 how often are you checking their blood sugar and and how are you doing that because bear in mind many of those patients will be on some sort of phone follow-up and you won't necessarily be seeing them that often if the wean is going to plan Question one. Question two, the patient who's got type 2 diabetes, who you start on that kind of level of insulin, that, that level of steroid, what are you doing in terms of checking their sugars? How often are you doing it? How are you doing it practically? Okay, so the, those that haven't, so I, we will, we, we, if we're doing blood tests in line with their toxicity, which we will be doing, I tend to do 
a random glucose at that point. And if their random glucoses are fine, which actually the vast majority are, then we want we just carry on monitoring like that. If they then show evidence of the fact that their glycemic control is deteriorating, then I would I would start them on treatment at that point as per the um, UK Chemotherapy Board guidelines, uh, because I am indeed a protocol queen, as you say. Um, but I also then want that patient to be checking their um, that their BM. So at that point, we then start talking about whether we can get them a BM monitor in the community so they can monitor them. Um, I think it is that because um, because of the fact that these patients, again, everything changes quite quickly with with IO patients in a way that they don't necessarily um, with with a non a non ICI patient. And also, we're changing things to them quite a lot. So we're giving them we're time you know de-escalating their steroids, re-escalating their steroids, their sugars will respond to those things. So we actually need to know what they are in real time. So you can't, they're not really a sort of patient that you can do a blood test a month and know what their sugars are doing. And you, so you just need to have a, a mechanism for doing that. And actually there are some companies that will provide free BM monitors for patients. And then the, then, then all that they need prescribing is the strips um, to actually do their BM monitoring. And certainly for some of our patients that we are doing app-based monitoring, we provide them with a BM monitor that they monitor, they monitor their bloods at home. So there are lots of different ways to do it, but it is worth just thinking about it. And again, most of the time, it'll be a case of you asking the diabetic nurses to, to, to support, the, the community diabetic teams to support. But I think if you've got somebody who has got deranged BMs, you can start them on treatment, but you probably just need to monitor them a bit more closely than you maybe would do in, an, in, in a, non, a non-checkpoint patient. Um, and similarly, in patients that have, have are known diabetics, but but again are having their HbA1c's checked three monthly and, and may check their blood sugars every so often, I would want them to have a home monitor and be checking their BMs at least once a day in that situation, just to make sure that actually we're not losing control. I think our the impact of steroids in terms of hyperglycemia is still woefully under under recognised in our patient group. There was a study that was um, published just just in the last couple of weeks that looked at using steroids in pneumonitis, which unsurprisingly showed that steroids were useful in pneumonitis. But they did say that of those that got grade three, four toxicity from their um, from their steroids, the majority of people. Um, uh, the, the, at least 10% of those were people who had significant glycemic control issues. So it really is, it's it, it's it's just worth being aware of that those numbers were actually smaller than I was expecting them to be, but actually still a very significant issue in those that get it. And it's a long-term problem and it has lots of lots of impact on them. So I think it's just important that we, we, we don't um, dismiss it. But I think in honesty, that's not just a checkpoint thing. We use we use steroids an awful lot in in oncology, and I don't think we pay particularly close attention to our to our um, sort of way of causing and inducing and um, poor poor glycemic control. I have a colleague of mine who's an endocrinologist up in in Scotland, and he did a study looking in in, in patients who were having chemotherapy for their gynae cancers with the dexamethasone around their around their um, around their their chemotherapy. Actually, they were then they had hyperglycemia for around ten. To, 10 to 15 days of their three weekly cycle after the DEX. So actually, even in people who are having sort of standard DEX for chemotherapy regimes, we probably are inducing poor glycemic control much more frequently than we think we are. And similar patients with brain mets or, or brain malignancies who are having high doses of DEX, we have to think about the fact that we can cause real problems with their sugars. And I don't think we're necessarily aware of it across the oncology paradigm, to be honest. No, that's really useful, Anna. So, so just so the audience have got something that's fairly easy for them to do, I think what I would talk from that is the patient who doesn't have diabetes, it's you're probably going to do it alongside the normal bloods, which may be weekly bloods. And somebody who does have diabetes, you're going to try and do get it checked once a day. And that sort of patient will probably need to have a way of doing that, that at home. Is that fairly, is that fair for what you were describing? Yeah. 
Okay, great, fine. And then the final question then, Anna, um, then we'll bring this to a close. So thinking about ongoing management of the diabetes, I'm presuming that we are going to link them into all the normal services. So for, you know, long-term eye complications, long-term renal, long-term neurological things. And I presume we're going to do that in collaboration with the, the diabetologist, endocrinology, diabetic specialist team, GP, who would normally manage the diabetes. Is that is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think they're one, the one, well, not the one group, but one of the groups who, um, they need to be referred into the, they they need to be supported by additional services so there are quite a lot of patients that we have that I don't know for example that get colitis that don't need to see a gastroenterologist or get nephritis and don't need to see a renal physician however the patients that get these because of the longevity of the problem really and the fact that they do need all these services they really really do need to be referred into into the appropriate appropriate sort of community and uh, secondary care service um, support processes otherwise they'll miss out on all of the things you've just explained and there's no reason why one of our patients is any less likely to get eye and kidney uh, and foot uh, complications than than somebody who who gets diabetes uh, sort of endogenously so really really important that these guys are are fed into the right services right and then final question anna because it'll be the question that people who are relatively new to io will 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 often want to know is can we re-challenge these patients once they've developed type 1 diabetes, once we've, and accepting, and I think it was a great point you made about the fact that we can manage these people often relatively quickly because of them often not having the infection that's precipitated it. Can, if we can get this under control in a, a small number of days and their treatment is in, you know, 10 days, two weeks time, I personally would be happy just to get on with that treatment, but keen to know, have you got a time that you want things to have settled before you'll carry on? Not a specific time. I think I want I want to be confident that the patient have got their sugars stabilized so if we're still kind of going up and down um with doses or their insulin just is is still needing to be tweaked somewhat um then i think you you've, you you can afford normally to wait until that's sorted um but i but i don't have a problem with rechallenging these patients i think it's 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 what we probably should be doing um as long as they're stabilized again they obviously then are are at risk of having uh, further further toxicity and that together with their diabetes may actually mean that you long term don't continue treatment because the combination actually patients sometimes will elect that it's all just it's all just too much really um so so it's it's certainly there are certain patients who will stop as as a result of that combination but certainly in terms of my stance for restarting and somebody that's got type 1 diabetes from their io i would absolutely be considering restarting as once they are stable on their insulin replacement Fantastic. So Anna, really enjoyed that session. Uh, thank you for the counselling at the end. It was much appreciated. Um, and well. have, have a lovely day. <laughs> thank you. You too. And see you again soon.